we are not the first creature to come along and radically change the planet, even radically change the planet in, in a way that causes mass extinction of other creatures. That's actually been done before. But we're the first to have some inkling that we're actually doing it. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. Hello, hello, hello. You're in for a treat today. I'm with David Grinspoon, who is many things, an astrobiologist, an award-winning science communicator, and a prize-winning author. But it goes on. He's a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute and adjunct professor of astrophysical and planetary science at the University of Colorado. His research focus has been on climate evolution on Earth-like planets and potential conditions for life elsewhere in the universe. My simple-minded translation of that is he's trying to figure out how and where we can colonize, and we're probably going to need to at this point. He's involved with several interplanetary spacecraft missions for NASA, which is like just a big thought in and of itself, the European Space Agency and the Japanese Space Agency. And in 2013, he was appointed the inaugural chair of astrobiology at the U.S. Library of Congress, where he studied the human impact on Earth systems. We're going we're gonna to poke into that a little bit today. And he organized a public symposium on the longevity of human civilization. And I was just writing about that in my book. David, I am blessed and so appreciative of you being with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. So, uh, you know, I tend to start with the proverbial softball, but it's an interesting softball. The audience always likes to know. How do people end up where they end up in their vocations or avocations? So how did you become an ast astrobiologist? Were you on a playground at some point, like looking up at the sky? Like, how, how, how did you get here, as David Byrne would say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how did I get here? The, you know, for me, the, the origin story is almost kind of cliche because I'm very much a child of Apollo. Like literally one of my first memories, maybe my first vivid memory, is of watching Neil and Buzz get off the lunar lander and um, bounce around on the moon. I, I was in fourth grade. You know, it was just so exciting to the imagination. And, and then, you know, the first missions to a lot of the planets were happening when I was a kid. The first Venus spacecraft and the first Mars spacecraft and the first spacecraft of the outer solar system. As a young kid and then as a teenager, I was just enthralled by that stuff. And I was a science fiction geek. And in my mind, the two sort of mixed together, the, uh, the science fiction and the real scientific exploration that were happening at the time. It was all the future and space and we were going to go out there. And I, I just was caught up in it. So I'm not, I'm not one of these people that, you know, went down a lot of different paths and took a while to work out what I wanted to be. I'm more somebody that like, from when I was a kid, I was enthralled with space and science. And then when I went to college, that's what I studied. And I got summer jobs, research jobs, working with cool scientists doing interesting projects and went to grad school and got a postdoc and, you know, it was very kind of linear, became, uh, became the thing that I was excited by when I was in fourth grade. And X years later, I would, this is another sort of softball question, or maybe it's just a statement. Uh, I imagine the coolness back then, it's just as cool today, I, I would think. 
Is that, is that fair to say? Like, yeah, it is. I mean, you know, it's funny because like any job, there's the sort of tedious and annoying and political and ag- aggravating <laughs> aspects of it. And, you know, you're chasing grant money and you're, you know, there, there's, there's BS, of course, but there's also frequent reminders that, wow, what I get to do for a living is, is really cool because we're discovering new things and we're building spacecraft and sending them to other planets. And some of what we're learning is even, uh, I think, useful to humanity beyond just satisfying our curiosity. We're uh, figuring things out about how planets work that will come in handy as we try to uh, make our own planet, you know, livable in the long term. So, yeah, it's the coolness is is definitely there, even amongst all the adult tedium of, <laughs> of any job. As <laughs> much of what you do, this is like a more of like my naivete about what an astrobiologist actually does, but is it much of it sort of through the lens of, of call it pure science, or is there a fair amount of sort of humanistic head scratching too? Like, is, is it maybe corny is it both science and art is is there an element of of the work that you know brings in the intangibles of the human condition or that sort of thing or, or is yeah it sort of straight up science no absolutely i mean the thing about astrobiology is that you know it's a relatively new field that is has been formed out of the synthesis of some older fields so i mean uh, astronomy has been around for a long time as has biology and earth science but astrobiology is kind of a melding of all of those in a, um, I'm sorry, can you hear my dog barking? Yeah, but they can probably take that out. Don't worry about it. Are you sure? Because I, I can try I, to. And I bet you half the audience has a dog, so don't worry about it. Yeah, so astrobiology is inherently interdisciplinary. You know, it's astronomer, as the name implies, astronomers working with biologists and earth scientists and others and trying to form a common understanding of really of life on Earth and then how we might extrapolate that to uh, what we're learning about conditions on other planets. And because it's got that interdisciplinary mix, I think there's also an openness to ideas from beyond science. So it's it's very cool that at astrobiology conferences, people do show up who are philosophers and sociologists and actually artists too, to some degree. It's I, I think it's just the nature of the subject matter attracts people from outside science. And there's been increasing acceptance within the, the scientific community of astrobiology of, of sort of working with people from outside science, because we recognize that the questions we're grappling with are not just scientific questions. There's a philosophical component. I mean, we're really saying, you know, what is life and, and what are we doing here on this planet? And how, how does life and consciousness relate to the physical universe. And those are not strictly scientific questions. Right. I mean, it, it goes back to, for the audience, David and I were chatting uh, before I hit the record button and uh, we're talking about the current situation, political situation and how politicized it is. And, and David said, you know, the answer, it's a shade of, it's usually a shade of gray answer, which is a way of saying, you know, most things are neither this or that, they're in the middle. And I think what you're saying is the astrobiological field is a, is a middle field. It has to bring together a variety of different disciplines and perspectives. So is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's like nobody knows enough to really crack the, the mysteries we're, we're dealing with, you know, and we, we kind of need each other's knowledge and perspective. And so I think to some degree, it breeds humility more than maybe some other scientific pursuits. Because if you're being honest, you have to recognize we, we know nothing about life in the universe. We have some hunches, 
maybe some pretty good hunches, some educated guesses about where to look and how we might find it. But, but we know nothing. We have zero evidence of anything, any life beyond Earth. We just have some ideas about how we might find it and why we think we should find it. But, but you really need, need the humility of, of realizing that you, you don't know enough. And anybody from any field who can sort of offer more insight, you should, you should sort of welcome that. Well, and, and that for me is like, you know, I started Insert Human three months ago because I, based on a, a, a fundamental belief that we actually, we actually don't really understand life on earth, <laughs> that, you know, that our, our ability to, to improve things, whatever that might be, is really predicated on how well we understand the truth of our humanity, you know, why we do what we do, why we don't do what we should do, et cetera. And that the m- majority of people walking the earth don't actually understand the truth of their humanity or that. And, and so it's, it, you know, it's just interesting to contemplate, like trying to figure out life out there. I, I assume some percentage of your work is actually also focused on life here. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so, astrobiology as a field in general is really in a lot of ways based on the study of earth life i mean it's all we've got and so there's a lot a lot of people within the field are studying the history of life and the limits of life there's a lot of attention paid to what we call extremophile organisms the organisms that inhabit the most extreme conditions we can find on earth you know things that like it really cold or really hot or really salty or really acidic or really high pressure so we can understand maybe something about the limits of life that help us you know help guide uh, what extraterrestrial environments we think might be promising. So there's that, in that way, we think about life here as, you know, very much as part of what guides astrobiology. But also, you know, in my particular work, you mentioned I did this this year at the Library of Congress, and the particular project I was working on there was trying to look at the Anthropocene, which is the name geologists have given for the, the time of humans on Earth, from an astrobiology perspective. In other words, you know, what is humanity on earth as a phenomena in, you know, if you look at it from that lens of deep space and deep time, what really is new and meaningful about the human presence on earth from that astrobiology perspective? That's really the question I was grappling with in that year at the Library of Congress that led to that symposium on the longevity of civilization and everything. So, so for me in particular, I've been very interested in astrobiology as a tool to help us look at our own planet and our own situation here on this planet and, and hopefully uh, give us some insight. And can you share some tidbits from that work, like some holy shits that you came up with? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned, you know, there's this idea that, that we've entered the Anthropocene, which is this new geological era of Earth history. You know, we've got these, the geological time scale with all these names we have for different times in the past. And supposedly we've been in the Holocene since the last Ice Age, you know, the last 10 or 12,000 years. And the idea is, well, we're no longer in the Holocene. We've entered this new geological epoch we call the Anthropocene, which is characterized by a new geological force, which is the combined activities of humanity changing the planet. And it's, it's been an idea that's kind of controversial, but I think very useful because of the conversations it provokes. So my question was, what's really new about the Anthropocene from a planetary evolution perspective? We are not the first creature to come along and radically change the planet, even radically change the planet in, in a way that causes mass extinction of other creatures. That's actually been done before. But we're the first to have some inkling 
that we're actually doing it and have some power of foresight. You can argue we don't have enough of the power of foresight. But what I concluded was that what's really novel is not that we're a new geological force, but we're the first self-aware geological force, you know, and that's pretty radical. A, a, A geological force that is aware of its own activities And of course, that creates a whole new level of responsibility and, you know, poses as many questions as it answers. But I think to me that that was if I had to say my one big takeaway, it's that that's what characterizes this change in Earth history is that it's the first self-aware geological process. Yeah. And I I love that. And and, and my my first thought when you you said that was, well, 27 percent of the people are self-aware, you know, like, I mean, it's interesting to see this debate about. You know, some percentage of people think that's actually not happening. I mean, if, if the sort of shorthand for all of it is climate change, which maybe that's too blunt a, a summary, but, you know, that, that there are humans walking the earth that deny that there is change afoot. And, Absolutely. You know, and remarkable, really. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's much broader than climate change, but climate change is the the sort of signature issue that, you know, that just illustrates the fact that we are planet changers in this blunt right. and potentially very dangerous way. And then, you know, the, the point you raised that, it, well, it's not everybody that I mean, that's what's interesting is that when you try talking about it as on a species level, and you say, we are doing this to the planet, and therefore, we have this responsibility, then immediately, the question is the valid question, well, who's the we? You know, is it all of humanity? Is it you and I having this conversation? Is it just like the rich people who have power? And then you get into these interesting questions of, on the one hand, I think it's useful to see humanity as this new phenomenon that's come along and changing the earth and has these these properties that no other creature has had before that and, and that we have to grapple with what it means to be a species on the planet with these properties that now is, you know, having having to deal with our future on this planet. But on the other hand, you talk about it on that level and immediately people come back and say, well, wait a minute, it's not the whole species. What about environmental justice? And there are people that aren't responsible or that are bearing the brunt. And, you know, it gets much more complicated. So you almost, to me, you have to kind of keep both those ideas in, in mind at once, the species level view and also the more complex you know, politics and differential geometry, or the differential geography of who's sort of got the power and who's potentially going to suffer more. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's so relevant to, I was writing, I mentioned the, this book that I'm writing, Technology is Dead, and I was working today on chapter nine, which is titled The Specters of Threat. And the whole point of the chapter is that humankind has been a warring creature since humankind was created, the the dilemma we have right now is the enemies we face aren't ourselves. The enemies we face are are these new forms of what I call kind of invisible threat. And one of them is the pandemic as as an example. And and you know and and drug resistance is another one. And they're all there are all these these new creatures emerging that we have to do battle with. Another one is climate change. And, and in writing the, this morning, I realized that part of the dilemma some percentage of people have getting their heads around these new foes is they're not visible. The time horizon on them is long. So we can't actually see the, the destruction like today necessarily at our door. And then solving them sort of seems so far beyond our capacity that I think we just sort of default to denial or ignorance or, or something, you know, 
and and so it's just uh yeah it just the thing gets bigger and bigger and i think more of us feel less and less capable of doing anything about it yeah i mean we're we're not really well equipped we don't seem to be well equipped to grapple with certain kinds of problems which are arguably the problems which are you know most pressing now which are long term and kind of invisible enemies or i don't know if enemies is even the right word but oh. but threats long term threats that you know it's like if i don't do anything today about climate change versus if i do it over the next few weeks is that really going to make a difference maybe not but but if i if i don't do anything and you know if collectively we don't do anything in the next few years then it makes a huge difference but there's like there's not like it's not something that's coming at me that like i have to like act right now or i'm dead you know or it doesn't feel that way it doesn't trigger our reflexes in the way that other kinds of threats that we're we're better at at dealing with do but there's a piece in the new york times a, a few months back I think by a guy named Charles Homer, I think is the name of the journalist, talking about, actually he was talking about the Australian fires and how our mind, and as a biologist, you probably know this better than I do, but our mind looks at something cataclysmic like the Australian fires or the California fires or the string of hurricanes, typhoons, whatever, and our frontal lobe says, oh my God, that's a problem. But in deep inside our brain is apparently something called the amygdala, I'd never heard about it until I read this piece. And the amygdala is our, I guess, our fight or flight mechanism. Right. And and it's it's wired to, that's going to be somebody else's problem. (laughs) You know, like, I'm going to be dead by the time this is really an issue, so I'm not going to worry about it. To the extreme of, I know my kids will have to deal with it, but I'm not going to worry about it. You're like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's true. We we have a physiological response system built in that responds to certain kinds of threats and doesn't respond to other kinds of threats. And and, and yeah, the amygdala is is key to that that sort of threat response. And and the kinds of threats that we are really faced with don't trigger that. And right. so we have to train ourselves to respond anyways and respond effectively. And and we've certainly done it. I mean, there are there are plenty of examples of us rising to that kind of occasion. You know, so the, the study I was describing where I, where I looked at the Anthropocene as an astrobiological phenomenon, that, that led to a book I wrote called Earth in Human Hands. And that's really where I, where I developed this idea of us as a you know, self-aware geological force. And I, I talked in there about sort of classifications of different kinds of planetary change you know, just random changes that, you know, an asteroid hits the planet or there's a big volcanic outpouring and it changes the climate where life has nothing to do with it. And then there's a kind of change where a life form comes along and changes the planet. Like when when, uh, photosynthesizers started liberating oxygen and then it led to what we call the oxygen catastrophe two and a half billion years ago where the planet was oxygenated and that actually led to a lot of species going extinct because oxygen was a poison when it first appeared. And then I talk about the what I call planetary changes of the third kind and fourth kind are inadvertent planetary changes like climate change, where we nobody set, set about and said, I'm going to we're going to wreck the climate. They said, we're going to invent these nifty engines to drive cars. And it was nifty and, you know, unintended consequences. You know, that's what, and then but then I talk about a fourth kind of planetary change, which is intentional and that 
that's really where we need to go is learning how to recognize ourselves as a planetary force and folding that knowledge into our responses. And the amygdala doesn't do that, but we have to call on different parts of ourselves. But I do give some examples of where we've been able to do that. And one, the best example is fixing the ozone layer, where in the 1970s, some scientists realized that the, as an unintended consequence of these CFCs, these chlorofluorocarbons that we were releasing into the atmosphere because they were safe refrigerants, which they are in most situations. But then when they leak up into the stratosphere, they start destroying the ozone layer. It's completely, you know, innocent, unintended. But we recognized we were doing it. And there was, you know, there was a lot of back and forth and denial and no, no, no. But, you know, it was a messy process. But ultimately, it led to a global consensus, something called the Montreal Protocol, where there was a worldwide agreement to phase out the use of these chlorofluorocarbons that were harming the ozone layer. And it's actually worked. The ozone layer is on course to being healed. It takes a while. You know, the chemical reactions are slow. It's going to take 50 years at best. But and it hasn't been perfect. Every, not everybody's adhered to it, but but it's been good enough. So it's actually an example of these, what I call planetary changes of the fourth kind, where where we, we can globally recognize a threat and take action and and sort of fix something. It's happened before. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be successful at doing it in every situation that counts. And, you know, cl- climate change, pressing change we've been talking about is a much harder one to solve than the ozone problem because so much of the world's economy depends on not, you know, <laughs> you have to uh, convince a lot of people that there's something more important than, than than quick profit. And that's a hard thing to do. But we, I think we do have it within us to, to make this, this kind of intentional shift. And the question is, can we get better at doing that quickly enough so that we don't sort of just stew in our own juices here. <laughs> you see in that, in the work that you have done, well, let me, let me start by saying it, it, part of what I've been hearing reading over the last year or two is this inference that globalization is dead. And, you know, you see more and more countries moving to this populistic, nationalistic, protectionistic place, which to me is like completely antithetical impractical, whatever. Do you see in the work that you have done more cross-country, more effective, you know, cross-country collaboration, cross-nation, whatever the right term is? Because the problems that we have are global problems. They're not, it's not, this is not a U.S. issue, right? This is, this is a, we're all in this together issue. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's very clear that to solve some of our really most pressing global problems, we need global responses. We need coordinated transnational responses to things. And it is disheartening to see, as you described, there's this sort of at least momentary movement away from global thinking, a lot of places towards this sort of populist nationalism. And, you know, the thing that's not clear to me, and I think it's never clear at any moment in history, whether, you know, some movement is just a blip and a little swing of a pendulum or the beginning of some major shift. It's, it, yeah, I don't think we have historical clarity on how big a change that really is. The way I, maybe I'm just sort of too hopeful and optimistic, but what I think it might be is a realization that the initial wave of globalization that is, we're seeing a reaction against that now. And that was perhaps done in a way that was a little bit too, like a lot of people were left out of the benefits of that. 
you know, like some multinational corporations, you know, did really well and a lot of workers in a lot of places and a lot of environmental considerations in a lot of places were not, not enough attention was paid. So there's a reaction to globalization. People associate globalization with that sort of exploitative model, but you don't want to throw a baby out with a bathwater. We need to be global in some way, maybe in a, in a different way. And the way I often think of it is we don't need necessary necessarily global government, like world government, but we need global governance, you know? And and again, I don't want to keep harping on, but like that ozone layer agreement was a successful example of that. It wasn't like there was, you know, the world police that said everybody must obey this law, but it was an agreement where everybody saw that their own self-interest was tied in with the global self-interest. And, you know, it's that kind of action that that we need and i you know i i do think that even though there's this blip of populism and who knows how far it's going to go and there's some frightening possibilities but i do feel like over a slightly longer time scale you know your lifetime and my lifetime certainly we see this greater connectivity of the world and we're s- surrounded by satellites that are beaming signals around and i can pick up Well, I mean, you and I are having a conversation now, and we're in different cities, but we're talking, we can hear and see each other. I mean, the the connectivity that we have available to us is amazing now. And I... Backwards anytime soon, right? Right, right, right. And I see that as ultimately a a force for good in terms of this need to have large-scale coordinated responses to things. But I'm not sure how that plays out with these crazy political trends we're talking about. How, how does that reality in, on Earth sort of influence your thinking as you work with various organizations on the possibility of space colonization? In other words, is that necessarily a global undertaking or is this like manifest destiny? You know, the first country that gets to Mars wins. Like, how, how do- well, no, I mean, that's a really good question. And I would say that on the whole, the scientific community, the global scientific community is a really good example of a very positive example of transcending national differences and boundaries, because, you know, of course there's, personal agendas and politics and all this, you know, BS that plays into it. But on the whole, I think there is a really sincere commitment to just trying to advance science. And people are interested in working with people from other countries. And, you know, and this goes back even during the Cold War in the early space age, you know, yeah, there was this narrative of competition between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, which was very serious. You know, they were involved in the arms race. And, and a, lot of, a lot of like the race to the moon was, you know, sort of threat displays for the, for the nuclear arms race. But at the same time, the scientists who were doing the first Mars missions and Venus missions on the American and the Soviet side, they were trying to cooperate with each other. And they were sharing data, even sometimes behind the backs of their political minders, because like... You know, the Americans, they wanted the data from the last Soviet Venus mission so we could make our Venus mission better. And the Soviet scientists wanted to give it to us because they wanted our Venus missions to work. And we wanted their Venus missions to work because we all wanted to learn about Venus, you know. So it's very interesting because there is this narrative, this, and it's very real, of the space race and the militaristic national competition. But then the science sort of behind all that has this, this layer of just like internationalism. 
I mean, thank God. And and you're saying that's alive and well today. Just oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And there's, I mean, there's the international scientific community is a very real thing. I think it is kind of a model for you know, sort of common goals transcending local affiliations. Well, we I think we see that with the vaccine progress. You know, I was writing about that too, and you know. Two, you know, Moderna and Pfizer are both coming up with a via, potentially viable solution in 250 days, or roughly, you know, plus or minus 50 days. Like that's just remarkable as compared with the 10 to 15 year development horizon, which was the sort of the norm, I guess. And and I think a lot of that is a function of of cross country or transnational collaboration, right? Like right, and it makes it makes so much sense. I mean, on a couple of levels, from a compassionate level. We want them to have a vaccine because they're human beings and we care about them. But, but from you know, a, a enlightened self-interest level or what, whatever you want to call about it, it's a global pandemic. And it's ultimately nobody's going to be safe until the whole world is safe from it. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's, let's shift gears and talk about the going out there part of what you do and, you know, contemplating colonization. And so one of my oft-used expressions in business, having run businesses for much of my life, when I'm when I'm trying to solve a problem or build something that's better than what exists, I, I'll often say to the people around me, you know, well, let's just imagine we were going to Mars and when we had a blank slate, you know, blank, a blank planet, a blank piece of paper, no pre pre-existing conditions, no grandfathering of old legacy thinking no biases, just a pure play planet where we could build this thing the right way the first time. And I literally have used that throughout my career. Uh, so as you, as you contemplate the more, the much realer version of that scenario, like how do you, how have you and others sort of begun thinking about what do you export to a planet? I mean, assuming a a planet is livable, like, you know, you can actually figure out that humans could, could exist on this thing. Does astrobiology get into the specifics of what you build at a societal, structural level? Or is it more, you know, can humans survive here? And that's really the question that we're trying to answer. Like how yeah, I mean, th- you know, there are people thinking about both. I would say it's not a mainstream part of astrobiology, sort of the world building of designing and contemplating societies elsewhere, but certainly the idea of the question of viability of life on a biological level elsewhere, that is something that a lot of people think about. But, but there, is a, there is a lot of talk these days about, you know, all those dimensions of what kind of a world would we build, say people could actually go and live on Mars. And whether, whether they even can is an interesting question. It's not totally clear cut that it's going to be as easy as some people think. But then, you know, so people do think, well, who, about who gets to go and what kind of a world do they build and who, who gets to decide that and, and what, yeah, what do we bring with us from Earth and what don't we and how do we build anew? And it's, it's a very charged discussion right now because there are people, you know, like Elon Musk is just saying, well, we're just going to go and we're going to start and build a city. And presumably, you know, it'll be sort of rich people that get to decide everything in that model. Now, personally, I don't think that Elon's plans on Mars are going to work out the way he thinks they are, because I think it's going to be a lot harder to go and live on Mars than I think the first people that attempt to build a settlement on Mars will fail, actually. And the reason why I say that is because I think 
we are still very ignorant about our interdependence on other species and our dependence on the environment of Earth and what that really entails. And you've probably heard about Biosphere 2, where a bunch of people built this habitat in Arizona and tried to seal themselves off for a year. In a way, that was like building a Mars colony, and it didn't work. And they even had a pretty sophisticated idea about we're going to build this biome and this, and we're going to recycle these gases, and we're going to grow food. They were pretty sophisticated about it, but they, they didn't know enough, and they made mistakes, and ultimately it failed. And to me, that's just an illustration of, I don't think we really know enough to build a self-sustaining habitat on Mars that can function. And I think in the process... Sorry, David, is that that purely a scientific, like was biosphere failure because they just didn't understand or connect certain scientific dots that... Well, it was partly that, but then it turns out when you learn about what happened, it also sort of socially failed too. Like there were factions and infighting, and, you know, so there's, you know, their attempt to just have a society was not as easy as they thought it would be either, you know. But yeah, so I think on all these levels, it's going to be harder. I think I think it's going to, not going to be physically as easy. And, and in the process, we'll learn something about our independence on uh, interdependence on other creatures. But then, you know, the social aspect of it is fascinating. Like, how do we build a society and and how should we think about it? And it's a great thought experiment for the kinds of questions you're raising about thinking about our society and, and our future. If we could strip it down and just sort of build it from scratch, what what would we include and, and how would we do it? You know, they, yeah, there's there's all kinds of interesting questions that are raised by I mean, Yeah, I mean, I, one, of the, one of the ones that I'm like stuck on, particularly as we watch what's happening in America, is what is the right governing system? You know, I'm not... I'm not 100% clear and I'm not implying anything in that statement other than I, you know, so if we were, if we were, if you and I were charged with settling Mars and we had to create a governing system from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. What would it look like? And I mean, that's a really, and, and there's a, there's a literature about this, by the way, of people writing papers saying, oh, Mars should be like this or Mars should be like that. Or, you know, there, there are a lot of people with ideas you know, may, maybe there there should be more than one habitat uh, settlement on Mars where the people try different models. You know, maybe that'll happen and see see what works. I don't know. By the way, you notice that I'm not. I don't use the word colony and colonization. No, I didn't. While you're writing, I apologize if that's like a. a, 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 a no, no, you don't have to apologize. It's interesting because, but it is sort of loaded. You know, there are people that that really object to that word, and you can understand why, given the history. You know, and it's related in some people's minds to manifest destiny and racism and genocide in the Americas and stuff. And I, I don't think that's not what we mean. If I say, "Oh, I want to go build a colony on Mars," but at the same time, because the word is loaded, I find myself, and because people you know, don't like it, then I'm, I'm not going to defend it. I'm just going to say, okay, I'll use a different word, you know? <laughs> Is there another cinnamon, cinnamon that's less loaded or? Well, that's it. There's been some discussion about that because I, I started using settlement for that reason. And then it's interesting because some people don't like that word because they say, well, but what that's like reminds me of settler colonialism. And I'm like, ah, so maybe habitat, you know, but then what's the verb? We go and inhabit Mars or, or you know, it's it's interesting. The language is, on one hand, who cares? We know what we mean. But on the other hand, it does imply some values. And that's really what we're talking about. What values do we bring to Mars? You know, so maybe we should think about our language. And there's a heady question that all this prompts for me, which goes back to uh, the first chapter of my book. And this is this talk is not about my book, but it's it's all very tied together for me anyway. But I start by talking about human progress. 
And, and I'm not a scientist. I'm actually not anything. I'm just somebody that's trying to figure shit out. And, and so I think a lot and I, I read a lot, but I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm actually not that bright. But I start with the question of what is progress? Like, what is the measure of our collective progress? Like, over the centuries, millennia of, of human existence, have we progressed, really? Is the measure longevity? Like, more people live longer now than they lived 50 years ago? Is the measure... What is the measure? And so, as we, as we think about settlements or inhabiting, inhabiting, whatever, inhabitants, is success existence? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. You know, that brings you to the question of, well, why do we even want to go to Mars and what's our point there? And some answers are, you know, there's one answer is that, well, it helps to ensure the um, survival of the human race, because what if something, you know, something could happen to Earth, something, you, you wait long enough, something very well may and so it, it's sort of an insurance policy on having not just humans but earth life last outlasting some calamity that may happen on earth I, that's one reason i don't know if that's the main reason i mean that seems sort of that seems valid to me on one level but i don't know if that's the main reason people want to go i mean you can ask you know go back historically why did we leave africa and why did we inhabit all the continents on earth and then why do we even go and live in places that seem you know inherently hard to live because there's not enough water or not, you know, we need to use technology to make places habitable for us that weren't habitable. And maybe going to Mars is just an extension of that same desire to just expand our, our domain. You know, maybe there's something in us that wants to move out of Africa and go live on other, in other places. And maybe it's the same thing that makes us want to go, go live on Mars. So then. Like man, destiny is baked into our DNA. Is that yeah, I mean, that, then the goal is just to is just to survive and thrive. And if if that's the case, then you know that at least gives you something to measure success by. Although you can or progress, although you can always go back and say, well, why why do we want to do that? <laughs> you know, it's an interesting question. Well, and, and then implicit in that is, and, and I think a lot about this. And I, I was talking to a really in, a interesting guy today named Richard Barrett, who was on the show a while back about what constitutes thriving. You know, if we're at, you know, let's, let's just go to this sort of crazy place of it's not just settling on Mars for survival's sake. It's actually settling on Mars to create a pilot of a community or a capacity to accelerate thriving. Like that, that we've, we've done such a bad job on Earth, we have to go somewhere else and start over to realize more thriving for more people. I'm making that up. And then you get into the, well, what the hell does thriving mean? Beyond surviving, you know, is there some other sort of dimension of this that as a species we haven't locked into as, I hate to say it, the meaning of life, right? Yeah. No, it's a great question. That, what is thriving versus just surviving? I think, I think that one narrative, though, of like, well, we screwed up the earth, so we should just go, go somewhere. Live somewhere else. That, that's, that's not a very valid to me way of thinking about the motivation to go there if that's the motivation then i'm i'm not going to sign up because <laughs> because we 
you know, we we can't abandon the Earth is our home planet. It's hard for me to imagine we're ever going to be as at home somewhere else. We may be able to build a habitat on Mars. Maybe in some far flung future, we can even terraform Mars if we decide that's a good idea. But it's never. It's still going to not going to be our home planet. It's not going to have normal Earth gravity. And, you know, even and, you know, ethically, and there's all kinds of ways I have problems with the idea of like, oh, well, let's just try again on another planet because we messed up this one. I think we have to deal with Earth and we have to deal with ourselves on Earth. And to me, the, the positive way then of thinking about what we're doing on Mars in relation to that is that I think there are things we can learn about ourselves and how we deal with planets by imagining ourselves on other planets and thinking, well, what would we do with Mars? How would we change Mars if we wanted to? Well, that involves thinking about deliberately and intentionally interacting with a planet as opposed to the accidental vandalism we've been doing here on Earth. So, you know, if we're going to be able to conduct ourselves on Mars in any kind of a sustainable and rational way, we're going to have to grow up a little bit in ways that we also have to grow up in order to do a better job here on Earth. So when you think about it that way, as opposed to like trashing the Earth and then moving on, maybe the, maybe the things we really need to learn in order to be able to build a civilization on Mars, if that's what we want to do, are some of the same things we have to learn in order to build a sustainable civilization here on Earth. Well, and you said a word that is literally, I think my if not favorite word, most often used word, and that is intention. And one of the things I've marveled at about humankind is the lack of intention. I mean, it goes back to my thing about human progress. When I started writing, that was my first question. Well, you know, what is progress? And, and it's, it's ill-defined. I mean, it, it really, it, we, we do not have a shared agreement on where we're trying to get to as a, as a group, otherwise known as homo sapiens, I guess. And so, you know, is that, I, I, my, my last question, I'm mindful of the time and, and I feel like I could talk to you for the rest of the night. Is that the sort of central, if, if, I, if I said to you, David, how can we begin to write the ship? How can we, you know, I think many of us, many of the people I talk to are, are looking around us and saying, this, this is not, this is not going well. This is not, this does not seem like a healthy situation for the collective and I'm not just talking about America, I'm talking around the world, knowing everything that you know, what would you prescribe or what would you advise for us? Yeah. I, you know, I, obviously I don't have a, a fully conceived solution to our, our planetary dilemma. And if I did, I'd, you know, I'd be out there standing on a soapbox and screaming and, you know, or running for office or something. But I think that the insight that I have to the extent I have any goes back to this notion of seeing ourselves as planet changers and fully accepting that and integrating that into the way we conduct ourselves on this planet. To some degree, we know that we've become planet changers, but then we can be like, we can talk, as we were talking earlier, we can ask, well, who's we? Maybe some small subset of us have some awareness of this. But to the extent that that knowledge of ourselves as planet changers becomes more globally distributed and more widely accepted, and then crucially becomes integrated into our behavior. So there's a feedback there. It's not enough to just see that. It's an integration of that into how we conduct ourselves globally. And, you know, and I do see long-term trends in the right direction that, you know, if you look at, there's this great website, Our World and Data put together by this guy, Max Roser, who has just all these graphs of how everything's changing long-term. 
I was on it today for the first time. That's so oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so you know what I'm talking about. So yeah, even amazing. even with all the bullshit that's happening now that we've talked about, you look at the long-term trends and like infant mortality has been going down, 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 down over the, over the decades. Extreme poverty has been going down, 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 down over the, over the decades. And education, you know, uh, the literacy are going up, 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 up. And even to the point where population is projected to peak and then turn over and start to decline later in this century for the right reasons, not because more people are dying, but because fewer people are being born. Because when you educate women and bring up their standard of living and give them more life choices, fertility tends to go down. So there are a lot of positive trends. And one can imagine then the world is becoming more educated and more connected. And there will be more awareness of ourselves as planet changers. And that will become more integrated into our choices. I see that happening. The problem is, it's happening slowly. And we don't necessarily have all the time in the world before we, um, you know, create really regrettable long-term consequences of our actions. So we're, we're back to that, you know, what, what H.G. Wells called the race between education and catastrophe, you know? So the, the, I, don't, I certainly don't have a, a political solution, but I think education and just continuing to communicate about and spread this knowledge and try to integrate this knowledge of ourselves as planet changers and, you know, the, the need to rise to rise to the occasions, to, to human up, except <laughs> accept our role on this planet and do a better job at it, you know? I think that is a perfect way to conclude this, for me, wonderful conversation. I want, before we leave, though, I, you have a couple of books, or can you just repeat your, your, the books that are out, out there for the world to, to get, get, get? Sure. Yeah, thanks. So, so, so the book that's sort of most relevant to a lot of what we've been talking about is called Earth and Human Hands. And then I have a couple books that are that are more focused on space exploration. There's one called Chasing New Horizons about the um, crazy effort to uh, explore Pluto, all the things that went wrong, but then was ultimately a successful mission to Pluto. And I, I have another book called Lonely Planets, The Natural Philosophy of Alien Life, which is what it sounds like. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, the thing that's going to stick with me besides what a lovely human being you are and a lovely human being, obviously, is the, this idea of all more of us one day, all of us becoming planet changers that, you know, it is not done to us. We are doing it to it. And we have a somewhere between an opportunity and responsibility to us to step forward. Thank you for stepping forward and, and being on insert human. And thank you for the work that you're doing, trying to, trying to guide, guide us forward. Well, thanks very much for, for having me on, on your podcast. And it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.